Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Black on Black Education podcast. We are here. It is season two. We are in episode four, and you're about to listen to an incredible conversation that I had with Miss Yolanda Seely Ruiz. Um, we're going to talk everything from culturally relevant care to critical English education. We're going to talk about from a teacher prep program perspective, how we can be supporting our Black youth. And so I am so excited for all of you to have the opportunity to listen to this episode with us and uh, sit back relax and enjoy. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Black on Black Education podcast. As always, let the listeners know who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Okay, first I want to say thank you so much for having me here. What an honor and a pleasure and a privilege. My name is Yolanda Seely Ruiz. And I am an associate professor at Teachers College, Columbia University. Amazing. So why, well, we're going to dig right in, right? Why research? Why um, Columbia? Why um, the academic, like why academia? Right. Well, first of all, I I want to be honest that I am an accidental uh, academician, right? (laughs) Remember that book, The Accidental Tourist? I am truly an academic accident in the sense that I always knew I was going to be a teacher. I knew that when I was 13. And even though I went into corporate America for about 13 years and took a different path, that was more in part to, you know, get a job to help my family because folks would always say, well, there's no money in teaching. Like, why do you want to be a teacher? You know, all of those stereotypes, some of which are true because teachers are underpaid, drastically underpaid. Um, but anytime I would say that to someone, they would say, well, why? And so uh, to some extent, it influenced my decision, but yet again, it did not, because even while I was working in corporate America, I was teaching high school at night. And so this idea of why research, I didn't intend to be a researcher. I knew when I was in the classroom that something felt right. And in fact, it was being in the classroom in my night high school that gave me the energy and I feel the purpose and direction to do the work I did during the daytime with the New York Times and Business Week, I was in publishing. And it got to a certain point where um, I said, okay, I know I always wanted the PhD. That's a longer story. I knew that when I was 13 actually. And it was really seeing a black woman on television with these three letters behind her name and she was really smart. And I said, wow, you know, I kind of want to be like her. And that was in the back of my mind. But in terms of research, there's nothing more practical, I would say, than good research and theories that can help us be better at what we practice. Mm. And so in believing that when it was time to choose research, I I chose something that was close to me. So um, after teaching night high school, Uh, I began to teach college at night and I taught re-entry women. These are sisters for the most part. There were some brothers too who had uh, dropped out of school sometime before and decided it was their time to come back to school. And so these were sisters for the most part getting their BA after having been away from school for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And many of their stories were not told. So although I was in an English education program that really focused on K through 12, I was teaching in an adult education situation. And so I could not ignore the stories 
that were all around me. Mm -hmm. And so I decided that if I'm going to study anything, I'm going to study with black women and I want to find out what's their story. Why did they have to leave school and why did they choose to return? So the, the research to answer your question, it started with really not so much a curiosity, which is what most research begins with, but with me wanting to make space for those fellow sisters of mine to tell their stories so that those stories could then perhaps encourage others who might be thinking, hmm, should I go back to school? Mm. So that's, that's really where that all happened and how that evolved. I love that. And I love the fact that we are kind of going into research from another lens. It's not this theoretical, I know so much about everything macho mentality that sometimes mm. seeps its way all throughout academia. It's this making space to tell stories because stories are knowledge and stories are the creation um, and the implementation and the innovation of what we're going to do in the future. So I mm. absolutely love it. So I love that you talked a little bit about education was always for you. Um, it was always what you wanted to do from a young age. And so let's start to talk about a little bit more in depth, the field of interest and why that became your field of interest. Mm. Yes, thank you for that beautiful question. You know, I think I discovered it when I was writing my tenure statement. And then these things called tenure statements, much like personal statements, when you apply uh, for college and grad school, you are reflecting on what led you to where you are. And it was in writing that tenure statement that I traced my trajectory up to that point. And so I had to go in reverse. And so it was, you know, my education, certainly at NYU and so forth, but it was really this postdoctoral fellowship. I was the first postdoctoral fellow for the NYU Metropolitan Center for Urban Education. That was founded by the now deceased Dr. Lamar Miller and after Lamar passed away, Dr. Pedro Noguera uh, came from California, from Harvard, from, I think, Berkeley, and took on this leadership role. But before Pedro came there and I worked with him, I began to do uh, work in school districts that were disproportionately placing mostly Black males in special education. Mm-hmm. And we know that that is... Uh, one of the deepest crimes in education, the ways in which black and brown children are funneled into special education um, without proper evaluation. Most of it is based on behavior and all of it, for the most part, when it's talking about disproportionality, is based on race and racism. And so uh, it's, you know, reflecting on that information, on that uh, work reality, took me back to my childhood in the Bronx. Mm. And I remembered growing up that I was always kind of tagged for the so-called gifted programs. And many of the girls were, the Latina and the black girls, for the most part were tagged as gifted. While the boys, I didn't have the language then, but they were put in other classes. And so in doing this work as a postdoc, it gave me the language that the boys were being put in special education. And the girls were being put on this track of being so-called gifted. And so that really led to my first, when we want to say research project opposite, I mean, outside of my dissertation, 
that's when I really started looking into, well, what exactly is going on in schools? What's happening in classrooms? What curriculum are children being exposed to? Now, keep in mind, I had already been teaching and I had been a student in public schools, but it was almost like a disembodiment because, you know, when you're in space, it's just like when you're going through trauma. You don't necessarily call it trauma in the moment. You're just trying to survive it and get through it. And so I spent my K through 12 in public school. I taught, as you, I, I think I mentioned, at a night high school. I was a teacher, so it wasn't like I wasn't aware. But for some reason, doing this work around disproportionality stopped me in my tracks and made me reflect on what I had come through. And that really set me on this path of inequality in education and looking at culturally responsive education, looking at this idea of racial literacy and what I call archeology span of the self for teachers. So that's been my trajectory. I had to go back to my childhood mm. in order to understand what I need to understand to ask the right questions. Crazy how that happens, right? It's crazy, it's mm. crazy. And and so you brought up a few things that I already was, was kind of getting prepared to ask, but it's thinking about, we've consistently on this podcast continually talked about the importance of focusing in and narrowing in on the needs of Black and Brown students, right? And so from someone who's from coming from the academic standpoint of it, someone who's in the, in the, in the chair, in the desk, in the room, writing these sorts of things, conducting the research, doing the, the, the analysis, what is what is what are those analysis telling us about why we need to particularly study black and brown youth? Why we particularly need to um, stop this idea of colorblind education and colorblind society? What is it that is inherent? And I think we've talked about it on this podcast again, yes. but coming from that ed that that education, I've I've read all of the books thing. What what is what is going on? Yeah. Well, first, I do want to give a big up to your podcast because you do beautifully handle that topic from very nuanced and different uh, angles. So I want to thank you for the work that you and your partner uh, continue to do on this. And, you know, here's the bottom line. This is a racist country. Last year was 400 years commemoration of the first enslaved Africans landed on these shores in the ironically named Port Comfort, Virginia. So from, you see the, the book on my shelf, stamped mm -hmm. from the beginning, as Ibram Kendi remind, uh, reminds us, stamped from the very beginning, right, was this project of inhumanity, this mm. project of inequality. So think about it. That's 400 years deep. We have only begun to, although we've been fighting from the beginning, from Sinke, we've always resisted, Nat Turner, Sinke, all of that. But in terms of in the education realm, we can really only start the timeline at 1954, which is Brown mm. versus Board of Education, which was a total mm. failure for us. Because what Brown really did, and this is the work of Lonnie Guineer and other scholars, what Brown really did was solidify a tracking system for black children, further marginalize poor white children, and further affirm the white elite. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, 
400 year project of inhumanity saying that some are more human than others. In fact, we weren't even considered, we were three fifths human or whatever they wrote in the three fifths compromise. That all of that has been entrenched in the public imagination and solidified in laws, in policies, in the systems that we all operate in. So that's 400 centuries of this work. And, 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 and so even after emancipation, so-called emancipation, 1863, then 1865, there were about 150, 152 years of Jim Crowism. So if you think about it, out of that 400 years, it's really only been maybe about 100 years or so that we have been on this equality project. And it's really only been 60 something years, if we mark 1954, that we've been on this equality project within education. Mm. So when you ask the question, why black children and by extension, brown children, it's because of that, because we have spent more time saying that a particular group, black children, are not human and therefore not uh, deserving of education and even further, not educable, right? Longer than we have been saying that they are human Mm. and they deserve an education and they're These Mm. things don't go away just overnight. Mm -hmm. And so it's certainly going to be the fight in my generation as long as I live is the fight that will be my daughter's 16 in her generation. Have we made inroads? Yeah. But... but this is a system that's so deeply entrenched and it's four started four centuries ago. I don't think mm-hmm. we fully understand that from the inception of this country, yep. we were written a particular yep. way. Absolutely. And I think that sometimes when I have these conversations with folks who are not quite where we are in terms of our understanding of history and its effects on everything that we live and that we breathe in this moment, um, is that you have to know how important it is for for folks to have knowledge and to be educated and to be able to read when someone sat down and wrote out a law that said it was illegal for for people who look like us to read, illegal. And so, and then furthermore, when we talk about the Emancipation Proclamation and we start to go into what it means to be free and what that, that, Mm. that, uh, ideology around freedom and what that looks like and what Abraham Lincoln gave to us. Um, We come into a moment where we can say things like black on black crime and we can say things like uh, they don't want to learn. They don't come to school. They don't do all of these things, putting, putting these labels onto what students uh, and black and brown students are feeling. Um, we forget somehow that even when it was illegal to read mm-hmm. by candlelight, people were teaching others how to read. Mm-hmm. Oh no, we're so dope and fantastic <laughs> and beautiful. Uh, amazing. And Incredible. I even have empathy. I don't know if it's sympathy. It might be empathy for those of us who are still colonized mm. because our history has never been taught. So part of that project of dehumanization, the way that it was able to um, further and be so, I want to use the word ensconced so deeply, 
is that as laws and all of these things were being uh, written, right, to keep us, keep it all in within the status quo, there was no education to question, to problematize, to unravel yeah. uh, from that. And so, so many of us, and we come from across the diaspora, mm -hmm. and many of us have come from colonized countries where British education or a certain education, again, has been taught in schools. And so there has been no opportunity to question. And so what we have done as a means of survival is to kind of go along to get along. And we know that unless you are interrupted, that soon becomes your reality. And then Absolutely. you pass it on. And then that generation passes it on and passes it on. And so that's yeah. why as much as it is that we have to learn, there is just as much, if not more, that we have to unlearn. So mm -hmm. I do have empathy for those of us who are still in a state of colonization. And also when you bring in capitalism and materialism, there has been uh, a reward, right? In some ways for staying within that colonized mindset and everybody wants to Ooh. get theirs. So it's, it's, it's complex, but it's simple. It's uh, straightforward, but it's layered. And that's why Black on Black podcasts and spaces like this is so important mm -hmm. that we try to kind of wake people up who are willing to listen. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And that brings me so beautifully into um, the next question around, explain for folks, what is racial literacy? What is it and what does it mean to the space of education? Um, what do, what do, what changes when we have more teachers, more educators, more, more theorists um, that are racially literate? Mm -hmm. No, thank you. First of all, it gives us an opportunity to go straight to the point. So culturally responsive education, culturally sustaining, culturally relevant, all of that is important. But in some ways, it's kind of disembodied, right, from the teacher and from really sometimes the, the, the very issue, the school, the system, the society. Racial literacy is naming exactly why we don't have culturally relevant or culturally sustaining curriculum. It's kind of like that nexus piece. And so I find that in the very deliberate conversation about race, we can get at the heart of racism. We can look at racist policies. We can look at the way people perpetuate racist ideology that then impacts what they choose to teach how they choose to teach it, and also what they choose not to teach. So having this idea of developing your racial literacy in the same way that we would develop math literacy, science literacy, these literacies are key. For me, racial literacy is one of the most important that before you even think about pedagogy and curriculum, you have to have that racial literacy yourself. And mm. part of the racial literacy development uh, kind of model that I, I've been working with has this component called archaeology of the self. And that in and of itself is the work. Mm. You've got to do that deep excavation. You've got to do that work to find out where that racism, that sexism, that homophobia, Islamophobia, religious bias, where that lives within you, how you mm. were raised, who taught it to you, who perpetuated it, how you perpetuate it. Because you can go to 5011 PDs and they can tell you all of this, but if your heart and your mind is not right, no, you will never do right by children. Never. 
because you won't even be able to do right by you or by your your neighbors of color. And right now I'm talking to the white brothers and sisters, okay? Your neighbors of color. You got to do the self-work and stop waiting for a PD or a magic book or something to teach you that. You could have mm. all of the resources, but if your heart and mind are not ready to embrace the change that has to happen, it will not sustain. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's even, it's, it's, I, everybody who listens to the podcast knows I went to a predominantly white high school. I spent a lot of my formative, very important years in a space where I didn't see almost anyone who looked like me. Mm. Um, I didn't have conversations about people who looked like me, things that were important to me. I was in high school during the Trump election. Mm. I was in high school um, during Trayvon Martin, uh, mm. Tamir Rice, uh, John, <laughs> just cons- over and over. And I was in high school in that time. And it was me and the, why are all the black kids sitting in the cafeteria together? <laughs> um, <laughs> us walking into school and seeing each other and not even having to say a word and know what the feeling is and sitting sure. in class and having the teacher be like, why are you all pouty faced today? Okay. Hmm. Statue. Hmm. Let me think. They're killing my people. How about that? Let me think. And so, and, and it feels almost, and again, this is looking back, but it feels like I'm in this space. I feel horrible. I'm sad. I'm depressed. Mm. And you're walking down the hallway and it's like that image in a movie when the dreary person is walking through the hallway and it's laughter and it's fun oh. and we're playing and it's, and you're just sitting here like, does nobody feel the intensity of what I feel right now? No. And is it even being brought up? Are teachers even questioning why I'd be coming into the space differently than everyone else in this building? Wow. First, and so, I, and so it's, it's just bringing in like, that is what racial literacy does. It allows for you to understand that, yes, maybe I do need to turn on a different news network so that when my students, the people who I'm supposed to love and care about, come into this building tomorrow, I'm ready and prepared with the fact that they saw the news last night too. Mm. And that they're coming here with a very different emotion, a very different feeling, a very different pain than other people in this building. And it's important that the other people in this building know that. So that when they're walking around, there's other people who, are, who might not understand, might not even want to understand, but they can know that something else is happening. It was at the point where you didn't even know something was happening enough to try to create a solution. Well, first of all, sister, you just said it all. And when I was going to interject earlier, I was going to do so to apologize in the sense that I'm sorry that you experienced that because, you know, I went to a public high school and we were very diverse. It was also about 5,000 of us. Mm. But part of what you said is why I took my daughter out of private school I had her in public school starting out and um, they started messing with her there. And then I put her in private school, not believing that it would be um, fabulous, but, but I just figured if I was paying for this, maybe they wouldn't be so outright racist. And um, it was actually ironically the hands of a Brown teacher that started some of this mess, but, but really recognizing that most of these schools where there are very few children of color when things like this pop off in society and you have mostly white teachers and mostly white students, and if racial literacy has not been done as a focus of professional learning 
consistently in that space, you're going to have children have the experience that you have. And so I'm sorry that that was your reality. And that is in part of why my daughter is now back in public school, you know, for high school. The school is not uh, beautifully, beautifully diverse in the way that I would want it to be, but there's a woke, truly a woke principal and uh, there's more diversity than it was where she was. Yeah. So yeah. there's scarring that happens. And I just pray you've had an opportunity to heal from that. Oh, I thank you. And absolutely I have. And I think part of that was getting on a podcast, the teacher that I had, um, who, where I got to say these things and express these things and then go forward with a it is not from a place of anger. It's from a yes. place of, I don't want the students who are there right now to experience what I experienced. So moment. beautiful. So, I mean, this podcast is activism. This podcast is just, first of all, it's intellectual candy for me. I just love listening to it. <laughs> and it is, to use a biblical reference, a bomb in Gilead. You know, certainly for me, it's a blessing and it feels healing to be in conversation with you in this way. And uh, I'm just grateful for it. Thank you, thank you. And so we will keep pushing, we'll keep passing out in Halloween season, we'll keep passing out the intellectual candy. So- That's right. <laughs> um, looking And in in looking you up, uh, one of the things that comes up is critical English education. What is that? Let people know so that they can, we can kind of go from there. Sure. I think what people should understand in education, whenever you see the word critical in front of it, you have to know that it is going to discuss those things that are urgent and important, but are not discussed in the regular kind of hegemonic white curriculum. And so in some ways, critical race theory is kind of like a double entendre, right? It's like race, race theory. So you know, when you see critical, you're going to talk about race, class, gender, sexual orientation, all of those things that for the most part, someone felt or people felt or curriculum writers felt we should ignore. But in not talking about it, it's not talking about ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's not talking about who we are. It's not talking about, you know, um, the way that we experience this society. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of critical English education is just that. How do we critically look at these texts or forms of writing through the lens of bringing full identities, of discussing race, class, sexual orientation, gender, religion, all of those things that we were somehow taught were taboo. The only reason we are taught that they're taboo is because not talking about them maintains the status quo of whiteness. And in talking about it, you begin to unravel, you begin to question, you begin to raise that critical consciousness. And mm. that critical consciousness we know leads to liberation, at least to the freedom that you were talking about. Because mm. people think they're free. A lot of folks out here, we're not free. You know, I want us to get free. And I think that's why you do black on black podcasts because you want us to get free too. Absolutely. Everybody Absolutely. get free. Let's get Let's free. Let's do it. 
Let's let's do it. I'm here and we for only it. do that by having the conversation. And so something that came out of critical race theory, right, is culturally relevant pedagogy. And now in this moment of the reinsurgence, the Black Lives Matter movement, every teacher and their mom needs a critical, um, a culturally relevant pedagogy. I need the pamphlet. I need the I need the book. I need the PD. Can you come? Everybody wants to know what it is now. Um, you have a flip culturally relevant care, right? Uh, so you talk about culturally relevant care. What is that? Mm -hmm. um, we, we've talked about CRP. Let's push into what, do, what is culturally relevant care. Sure. And I stand on the shoulders of where uh, that's a wonderful scholar that introduced culturally relevant care to the field. And my co-writers at the time were my doctoral students, Aisha Jackson and Wanda Watson. They're now uh, tenure track professors in their own institution. We realized that when we were working with these beautiful black and brown young men and their advisor, that there was so much love and care that was taking place in that uh, it was like a mentoring program, but they got credit for it. You know, my, my teaching background has always been in so-called uh, alternative schools where the students are emancipated minors. So they may be 16 or 17, not quite emancipated in society, but they may be taking care of family members, you know, paying their own rent and so forth. And so these uh, so-called alternative schools were those who may have had to drop out or stop out and then come back. And so they tend to be older. Um, and this was the school that uh, I was serving in and uh, working with these young men with my two students. And so one of the pieces that we wrote was this idea of culturally, you know, it was called daring to care. Right. And we looked at culturally relevant care and quite simply that was in that mentoring space. We saw those young men and what we meant by mm. seeing them is that the curriculum, everything we talked about was centered around something important to their lives. Uh, anything that we wrote about was important to their lives or something that they need to work out. It became a problem solving space. It became a way of using curriculum to care for them based on what they needed care for in that moment. And so that's the idea of culturally relevant care. And, and you know, culture can be an expansive term. We can talk about culture as it relates, as we often do, conflating it with race and class and all of that. But culture is also ideologies. You know, you could have young people who are part of like a teen culture or they might be part of a rap culture, a rock culture, a goth culture, an emo culture, right? That's part of their existence too. And so mm -hmm. these spaces, or at least that space, had to hold whatever cultures they were bringing to us. And that became that culturally relevant, caring space. We see you, we want you to bring your full selves here. The curriculum were reflected, the way that we talk to you were reflected. And out of that space naturally came a lot of love. And another piece we wrote was called Reciprocal Love based on working with those same young men. So we, we were able to write two, well, I wrote a, another chapter or so, but we were able to write two articles. And at first I didn't want to write about it. I was there with them for three years before I even talked about it because it was such a sacred space. Mm. And then I thought, two things, two functionalities. The first was, well, if we document this story and someone takes it up, perhaps they can see the beauty and the importance of why they should do this and how it can be done. 
And then quite frankly, you know, I knew that my doctoral students were going to go into the academy. And one of the capital of the academy is, you know, articles and chapters. And so I also wanted them, I wanted to care for them and make sure that they knew what it meant to be lead on articles, that they Mm -hmm. understood that they had what it took to make themselves, you know, make their way into the academy. And so the project overall was caring for everyone, caring Mm. for the young men that we were with, and then also caring for them in their future careers and caring for the teachers that we may never meet or the scholars that we may never meet for them to see what we learned and why it was important to kind of take up that concept. Yeah. So beautiful and Mm. so nuanced. And I think it's just, there's just so much there and like you said that's we do this podcast there's just so much to talk and the conversation is incredibly rich and so I'm so grateful um to just be having your insights Mm. um and so you wrote an article called education as if black lives matter Mm -hmm. and I was like struck right so in, in, in getting so close to the end which feels crazy how are we already getting close to end crazy Crazy. Um, I cannot understand it, but leave us with what this means and how teachers and parents and student selves, because we consistently forget about them in this discourse about how we advance and recreate and reimagine the education system. Um, how can they advocate to make this happen, to have an education in schools uh, that is for Black lives, that cares about Black lives? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and making this happen not only in their school buildings, but, but reverberating around the country and, and the world. It's a huge question. But. And, so, and it's a beautiful question. And it's the question that all school districts and all departments of education need to be asking. And quite simply, it really is about seeing that we are incredible humans. Right? I think there's still some people who may be out there in leadership roles that are actually questioning the humanity of Black people, actually questioning no matter how much we've invented, no matter how dope we are, no matter the fact that uh, 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 a Black man, even though he was mixed race, this society treated him as a Black man, has been president twice because people are so addicted to whiteness. People have been so deeply entrenched in whiteness for so many decades, certainly within their generation, that they actually may still believe or have some doubt about our humanity. Mm. So first and foremost, what education is that Black Lives Matter is, how about that we're human? And how about that beyond being human, we have taught and given so much to this country So how about we just have that reflected in the curriculum? That's Mm. education as if Black Lives Mattered, right? How about we look at suspension roles and the disproportionality rates, right, of who is suspended and who is put in special education based on teacher judgment and not actual kind of clinical assessments? That's acting and having education as if Black Lives Matter. How are we engaging with communities and parents, brilliant, beautiful black parents 
who have been shepherding generations and generations of black children through these school systems that clearly don't love them. What mm. if we opened up space in a different way in schools for black mm. parents? That's education as if black lives mattered. So every place where we see we are disenfranchised by a school system, marginalized by a school system, let's do the, as the office, the, the show The Office would say, let's do opposite day. Mm. Let's flip that script and then you will see that that is education mm. as if Black Lives Matter. Mm. I love it. I love it. I love it. And there's, there's, and that's it, right? And, and so just like you said a little bit earlier, you talked about how it's so simple, but it's so difficult. And it is so simple, but we've mm -hmm. made it hard. We've made it hard. And what's most difficult, sis, I would have to say, is what people are going to lose. That's, what, that's why people are, are, are holding on yep. to whiteness and holding on to these beliefs. Uh, and even those whose hearts, you know, and I use the term very deliberately, white brothers and sisters, because we're all human. We recognize people as human. But even those white brothers and sisters whose hearts may be in the right space, at the end of the day, the human being is so egocentric, they're still concerned about their position and their generation, their children, their nieces, their nephews, because they know the benefits that they've gotten. Even if they are working class or poor, they understand the benefits that white skin has given in this society. Mm. And that produces fear and that fear paralyzes people or have them hold on to the status quo because yeah. they are afraid. Afraid. And the thing is, is that in a society where everyone has their needs met, in a society where people care more about their fellow human than the bottom line, in a society where we hold on and love and treat us all with care and just love on each other, that is a much, much, much better place to live. We flourish and sis, love is the answer. That's like, I'm not plugging my book, Love from the Vortex, but on the back of- Plug the book, your book. Listen, but on the back of it, that's what I have. Love is the answer because sis, it is. It covers over a multitude of sin. It opens up your heart and your mind in ways that you could have never imagined. And this is what we're so far away from. Yeah. Yeah. We're in a space where the two people who want to leave this country are screaming at each other um, on, a, on a debate stage. We're living in a place where someone can see someone having knees on their neck for eight minutes and can try to find a way to justify that. Where we can have a ruling that says that the people who came into the wrong home of a woman in her sleep, not a knock, mm. can kill you and that it's okay. And we are fighting about whether or not that is a problem. What's going on? We're missing a whole bunch of love. And we haven't taught love. And for some reason, it's not in the curriculum anywhere. Um, it's <laughs> and so as, as much as I believe that school is not um, the end all be all of our education, because yeah. we have learned far, 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 far more without an education system that loves and cares on us. Mm -hmm. But 
it, it just it's integral. It's so important. It's so important. Mm-hmm. And, and where, where are we at that for some reason, the conversation continually streams into a, how are they going to pass the test or how yeah. are they going to do this? And why can't they do that? Then a, what would happen if we showed them and they know and they believe that they were loved? Oh, sis, we can end the podcast. We could pin the podcast. First of all, we'd have a whole different civilization, right? We would have what I would say, and I'm not, I'm not romanticizing the continent, but what I have learned and what I know about the continent, it had its war structures and all that other stuff. But this African philosophy, South African philosophy of Ubuntu that pretty much is, regardless of which country on the continent you come from, there was that mindset that I am because, even though South mm-hmm. Africans professed it, but I am because you are. We are because of each other. And mm-hmm. if you think about it, that's the only way that we've survived. Ancestors that came before us loved us enough to mm-hmm. ensure that somewhere down the line, we would have this conversation. Mm. Now, if that ain't love. So I say we need to look to the people that know something about it. And those people need to be at the table writing curriculum. They need Mm. to to be at the table hiring the teachers. Mm -hmm. This is how we can infuse love. Talk to some people that know something about loving humanity, practicing it, and then have those people be the designers of your school, of your curriculum. Then we'll have some love in the schools. Jeff Bezos, are you listening? Just saying, just putting it out there, Jeff. And maybe listen to this before you launch your, let me stop. Okay. Well, don't stop because maybe <laughs> you can send him this podcast. Listen, sis, I'm a, in the words of Robin Kelly and Bettina Love, I'm a freedom dreamer. Mm. Get this podcast to him. Let's or to it. somebody that works for him with him, because you know what they we're calling you in. This listen, come here. And if you're come about, here, and if you're about it, come here, boo boo. If you're you about wouldn't have it, no problem. You'll have no problem. You wouldn't have no problem. It. Absolutely, I love it. All right, we're right after you ask me my question because yes. you are now the interviewer. Once you ask me that, we got to get on sending this to Jeff Bezos. So y'all listeners, you heard that, please at him at amazon they got black lives matter all over the amazon page so they would love they should love to listen they to the black, on black love, they should podcast. put this on the amazon page all right here's my question to you sis just formulating now if you could paint i'm a visual learner if you could paint in words the education system for black children mm. what would that look like mm. from leaving their house to getting into the school door and their day in school. Can we take those last couple of minutes for you to paint for me with words, what that would look like? Yes. And that you're freedom dreaming, by the way, you're freedom dreaming. We're not being restricted. We're freedom dreaming. I love, I love this question. Well, first off, we would let children sleep. Mm, Thank you. So we would start there. Mm. We would start with them being able to start the day replenished from a good night's rest. So even for those of, our, those of us who are, who are teenagers and want to stay up all night, you would come to school at a time that made sense, um, like 11 a.m., 10 a.m. Yes. yes. Well, that's when we start the day. You come in and you eat. 
with others in conversation mm. uh, because food is, is an incredible way of replenishing our bodies and a way of socializing with others. Um, and then we would have some sort of community uh, agreement. And, and just to come back, we're, we're visually, we're painting this. What does this building look like? It is not brick and boring. It has a brick from each child who attended the school that they were able to be a part of um, that building. A hand, handprints and graffiti and music notes. And as you're walking in, the playlist of the beautiful children who are walking in and the music that they love to listen to. Um, as they're walking into the building with a teacher and principal and school leader who is standing at the front of the building to greet them um, because he cares that much. And he's asking, oh, how's your grandma doing? Oh, hey, because he knows your name and he knows what's going on. And sure, she knows or they know your name and they know what's going on with you and your family. And then after we eat, we will have some sort of moment to come together in community because we're goal because this is our space. This is our community space. Um, so have a moment to have our advisory where we have a conversation. What was yesterday like? How can we make to get today better? How can we center ourselves to be better? Um, and then we have homeroom where we come in and we check in um, because we didn't have homework yesterday because why would you need it? Because school doesn't end until 6 p.m. So you wouldn't have to do any work when you got home because it should be a place of comfort or where you can enjoy your evening and spend it how you want to. So in homeroom, we're coming in, we're checking in, we're having attendance. Oh man, Aaron isn't here. Why isn't Aaron here? Well, one of the students in the class is gonna know why Aaron is not there or the teacher is gonna know why Aaron is not there or whoever is in charge of parent communication, who will, which will be a job description for someone. Um, is gonna know already why he's not there. But because we're a community, someone else in the classroom, another student in the classroom is gonna know why he's not there. And how are we gonna make sure that he's not behind? And that's how we start our academic day with not only thinking about what I'm gonna to learn today, but how I can make sure that the rest of the people around me are learning. And then we'll have classes like, it won't be history, right? We'll have classes that are centered around what is it that I want to know? What is it that I want to create? How do I want the world to look different? And what do I need to pick up from the past so that we can make the world look different? So we are in a project-based learning sort of space, right? There are no exams at this school. Um, we are analyzing and we know that students know because they are taking autonomy over their education and creating projects that are illustrating that to us. They have portfolios of information that show that they know how to read, that show that they know how to write, that show that they love the world that they live in, that they love their community, that they wanna make their community better. Nobody in the school is talking about getting out of the hood. Everybody in the school is talking about reforming, recreating, reimagining the place where they came from. And so throughout the day, we would have different classes and sessions like that with plenty of breaks because students need breaks where we eat together and we do yoga together and we exercise together and we smile at each other and we have gender neutral bathrooms because everybody in this space feels comfortable with everyone else and how they show up and how they come into the building. And then granted, we know that people are going to mess up. Teachers are gonna say the wrong thing. Children are gonna bully each other. Things are going to happen. And so when that comes up, let's sit down, let's have a conversation about it and not a one-off conversation with one child and one child, a something happened in our community 
Let's fix our community together, collectively. Um, and then we end the day at about 6 p.m. And that's when people go home. But if your parents work later, somebody is there to make sure that you're still in this building. And if your parents are not at a place where they want to be with their education, there is space for them there as well. And three meals a day are given to every student who comes here because there should never be a reason why you're hungry. And on Friday, if there is an issue, well, good thing the school is open on Saturday and Sunday too. That is what would make the society in which I live a place that I'd be extraordinarily proud of. If that's what schools look like in every community, regardless of what people look like, regardless of their socioeconomic status, that they had a place that from 10 a.m., but we know that the, the school opens earlier than that, but from whatever time that their parent needs them to be in that building to the time where they need them to go home and the supports that the parent needs to make sure that when they go home, that child still is having their needs met, that is what a school building should look like. Not one with metal detectors, not one with, with police officers. I could go on forever, but that building would be a place where children are running to every single day. And the only thing that I can say is Ashe. Yeah, I can't, I, I love that question so much. And I think that we can't stop until we are creating more and more spaces that look and feel like that. Yes. And we have to remember that we're, that we're powerful enough to make it possible. Yeah. Oh. I want to thank you. That was beautiful. Oh. Thank, I, thank you so much. This is the end of another incredible, incredible episode of the Black on Black Education podcast. I can't stop smiling because I am so grateful for being able to have created this space. And so thank you. Thank you so much, Yolanda. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a great rest of whatever part of the day you are in. And we will see you next week. Bye-bye.